Hey guys, I hope you're having a great day. It's your boy Swamp Dweller back with another spooky video where I will once again be on screen telling some spooky stories from the great outdoors per the usual. With that said, I hope you're all having a great day. Sit back and relax because today's episode's gonna be pretty brutal. One of the worst mass killings in Canadian history. Tonight's story takes place in the magnificent Wells Gray Provincial Park in central British Columbia, Canada. The area is absolutely stunning and is on my bucket list personally of places to visit. With over 40 waterfalls, ancient volcanoes, and glaciers that have carved out rivers, there is nothing but serene beauty all around. On August 2nd, 1982, the Johnson family set off for a two-week vacation, spending a few days visiting friends in Red Deer, Alberta, before making their way to Wells Gray Park. Bob and Jackie Johnson were in their early 40s. They traveled with their two daughters, 13-year-old Janet and 11-year-old Karen. The family had planned to spend some time hiking and fishing with Jackie's parents, George and Edith Bentley, who were 66 and 59, respectively. Jackie's parents were married for 36 years and recently had sold their house to be able to travel more. The couple even bought a brand new 1981 Ford pickup truck with an attached camper to travel full time. One of Bob's best friends described the family as being incredibly close and they all got along very, very well, especially when hanging out outdoors doing their favorite things such as fishing and hiking and camping. Grandpa George preferred quiet days alone, fishing or camping, or spending time with his granddaughters. Grandma Edith was much more outgoing and lived for trips with her family and grandchildren as much as she could. In addition to their adult daughter, Jackie, George and Edith also had two other grown children, Brian and Karen, who lived near Vancouver. The Disappearance On August 16th, Bob Johnson failed to return to work at Gorman Brothers Lumber in West Bank. The Vancouver Sun reported that in Robert's 25 years of working at the mill, he had never before overstayed his vacation by any days. His colleagues wanted to take their concerns to the mill's manager, but coincidentally, he was also on vacation at the time. Instead, the workers called Jackie's brother and sister to check on the Johnsons. Jackie's siblings, Brian and Karen, went to the Johnsons' home in West Bank and everything in the three-bedroom family home looked normal. The phone line and electricity were operable. There was food in the pantry, and unpaid bills piled neatly on the coffee table. Family waited to call authorities, hoping to hear from their parents or Robert and Jackie. When Bob's manager returned to work after his vacation, Bob had still not returned, and that's when he was officially reported missing to RCMP on August 23, 1982, a full week after he was due. Of course, everyone feared a car accident or was worried that the family were perhaps lost somewhere in the forest, but the truth would be far more devastating. RCMP officials launched a massive search in Wells Gray Provincial Park and investigators fanned out across the nearby town of Clearwater, relying on information from eyewitnesses who had seen the Johnson sedan or the Bentley's truck during the dates they were known to be camping. Airplanes were brought in to search washed out areas for any sign of the vehicles, tents, or remnants in remote locations, or the metal boat which had been attached atop the camper. Two weeks of intense searches went without a single clue to the family's whereabouts. No sign of the cars, no metal boat, no tent, absolutely nothing. Police didn't know it at the time, but there was a huge clue right under their noses. 
A chilling discovery. Five weeks after the family was last heard from, a mushroom picker named Kurt Crack found a burnt car 13 aerial miles from Bear Creek on a rural logging road. The driver's side door was still open. The car matched the description of the Johnson's 1979 Plymouth Caravelle. Detectives checked the license plate number and, sure enough, it came back as belonging to Bob and Jackie. It was fairly evident to the officials that whoever lit this car on fire didn't just add a little bit of accelerant, they definitely, uh, they went overboard to say the least. Whoever set it on fire had to have doused it in gasoline because everything from the springs to the floorboards, every little piece of metal was melted down to almost absolutely nothing. Inside the car's back seat was a pile of burnt bones, which were later identified as that of four adults. Inside the trunk were the remains of two girls, and unfortunately, but finally, the Johnson family and Bentley families have been found. Forensic analysis of the bone fragment showed that the family had been killed by a 22 caliber gun. Because the location was in an area that wasn't very easily accessible at all, it was assumed that a local may be involved with this crime. Investigators found six spent 22 caliber bullet casings around the area and some beer caps from a brand that Bob Johnson was known to drink, as well as some full bottles of beer still cooling off in the nearby stream. This detail of the gun caliber, however, was held back from the press for some time. All they initially were letting on was that they thought that these two families had been murdered, and of course they were killed by shooting. They wanted to keep the specific weapon and caliber a secret because only the killer would know what caliber was used. Still, the Bentley's 1981 Ford truck camper and belongings were never found. The Investigation Authorities were able to confirm that before checking in with their adult daughter Karen, George and Edith Bentley did sign their names in a check-in book on August 3rd. But afterwards, government employees in the park went on strike, so that meant that no one had put in the registry for a couple of days so no one would have noticed if they were missing or not. A gas station clerk in Clearwater told the police they had given the Johnson family directions. They sent them down into the park via an old logging road. This was on the weekend of August 7th and August 8th. The clerk positively identified the girls in the picture. The RCMP was showing around. The gas station attendant specifically told the RCMP that the family were looking for good camping spots specifically near wild berries because they wanted to collect some. The directions the clerk gave the Johnson family would have put them on that old logging road the same day heavy rains would have been coming in. News of the six horrific murders and arson spread far across Canada. Families in all provinces, but more specifically British Columbia, were absolutely on high alert. They were terrified that this murderer could strike again at any moment and it could potentially be their family that was next. People and news outlets alike all theorize that this wasn't the work of just one man, this must have been the work of a team of killers. Heavy speculation was going on that Wells Gray Park may just have a team of murderers on their hand. Desperate for leads. By March of 1983, RCMP still had no named suspects and allowed something quite surprising. 
They let a Canadian documentary crew from a program called Citizens Alert put together a segment on the unsolved murders. A reenactment of the killings was filmed and then broadcast across Canada. Police had hoped the reenactment would spark someone's memory. The police were flooded with calls after this, but no solid leads ever came from this endeavor. In an effort to drum up any sort of leads, police investigators made an exact replica of the 1981 Ford camper that went missing, including the aluminum boat strapped to the top. In May, they drove the camper to British Columbia from Quebec, holding press conferences to publicize that the camper was coming to each city so people could get a good look at it and know if they've seen it or not. Or, if they see it in the future, they would be aware of what it was. Over 1,300 alleged sightings came flooding into the RCMP, and they had to investigate every single one of them. The RCMP also posted a 7,500 $100 reward for any information that would lead to the arrest of the perpetrator. They also printed 10,000 missing persons posters. They sent them out to police detachments and post offices all across North America. By September, though, investigators started to put their attention on one specific lead. A mechanic from an auto body shop in Windsor, Ontario, came forward with some information and reported that two men who did resemble the composite sketches that were circulating around at the time asked him to paint the outside of a 1981 Ford truck. This mechanic said that both the men spoke with a thick French-Canadian accent. Apparently, they were carrying around a 22 caliber handgun as well. And apparently, they even asked the mechanic where a good place to dispose of the gun was. The mechanic told the RCMP detectives that after he painted the vehicle for the two men, they told him that they were headed down south. Apparently, they were going to go across the U.S.-Canadian border and jump over into Detroit, Michigan. As officials in Canada began to try to contact people down in the Detroit, Michigan area so that authorities in the United States could track down these two men, forestry workers back in Wells Gray Provincial Park made a uh, rather astounding discovery. On October 18, 1983, two forestry workers walking through the woods on a remote mountainside in the park noticed something odd in a thick section of evergreens and brush. Behind these branches would be the remnants of a burnt-out truck with a camper on the back. These two forestry workers, of course, called the police right away. Within just a matter of hours, the RCMP descended upon the location to confirm that this was indeed a vehicle a part of the investigation. After obtaining the license plate number, they were able to confirm 100% that this was the Johnson's Ford pickup truck. And apparently, the Bentley's truck never left the park at all. So, that tip from earlier turned out to just be something coincidental, even though it also seems pretty sus. The location of the truck was about seven and a half miles away from the burnt Plymouth that had been found, and less than 20 miles away from the campsite that the authorities knew to be the main crime scene. The discovery of the Bentley's pickup truck brought both relief, but absolute shame and a bit of humiliation, to be honest, to the RCMP investigators. They had to publicly admit on national television that they had been chasing basically false leads for an entire year when everything was right under their nose. Former detectives in several interviews over the years have admitted that it was pretty embarrassing and they were dismayed at how much time they had wasted in that year following false leads that didn't end up helping anything. Finding a Killer 
With the Bentley's truck and camper identified, investigators restarted and started their entire investigation from fresh again. The truck being hidden so well in a very thick wooded area in a ravine was fairly curious to the investigators. Police actually had to chop down a significant amount of trees just to get the truck out of there and process it. According to an article in the Vancouver Sun, the underbrush was so thick that RCMP officials who were flying any sort of helicopter or plane would never have been able to see the vehicle among the brush. It was so covered in foliage it just wouldn't have been noticeable. One search and rescue volunteer told the newspaper that in the remote area where the camper was found you could easily be only 15 feet away from it and not even know it was there. That's genuinely how dense these woods are. RCMP told the news outlets that since this was in such a remote and hard to get to area, that only someone who was local and lived in this area for a long amount of time would likely be the person who committed this. When detectives searched the surrounding area, they did notice it wasn't very far from a cliff. RCMP had deduced that the driver had likely intended to launch the vehicle off the cliff into the ravine, but evidently they were not able to get as far as they had wanted. The truck was so severely burned they weren't even able to tell if the aluminum boat was still attached at the top or not. The truck body camper shell and the interior had all melted into each other forming basically one big massive pile of wreckage. Unfortunately this meant that finding any sort of forensic evidence like DNA, fingerprints, hair, etc would basically be impossible. Cleansed by fire if you will. One notable discovery at the camper though was a single 22 caliber bullet hole on the side of the camper. At this point, investigators re-canvassed and re-interviewed everyone who lived in Clearwater and the surrounding areas, trying to resurface any clues they may have missed the first time around. They no longer believed the killer had left Canada. They now believed they had taken off into other provinces. Officials with the RCMP were very confident that the killer was a local, and they likely only needed a 22 caliber gun and an axe to get away with this crime. Police officers brought in dozens of people for questioning and interviews. They ran 24-7 surveillance on many people with extensive criminal backgrounds in the area, and of course made every single one of them take polygraphs. And according to news reports that I could find, every single one of them seemingly passed those polygraphs. According to the Wells Gray Gunman documentary, after two weeks of doing this non-stop, authorities finally caught a break when they visited the home of an elderly couple living in Clearwater. Before leaving the man and woman's home, the wife brought up and said, tell the officers something Dave said. The husband was reluctant to elaborate, but eventually with some coaxing by the RCMP, did further share details. A man a few months earlier named Dave had asked them how you would register a vehicle with a bullet hole in the side of it. Kind of a strange question, right? Bingo. At the time, RCMP thought they had finally found their red herring. Also at the time, authorities never had released any information about there being a bullet hole in the door of the truck. They had mentioned that all the victims had been shot to death, but they had never ever said anything about the caliber or the extent of the damage done to the vehicles. They had just said they had been burned. They never said anything about any bullet shots, any gun holes, anything like that. The couple told officers the man they knew as Dave was 24 years old. His full name was David William Shearing. 
They said in the summer of 1983, he had recently moved to the Clearwater area after living on his family's farm, just outside of the Wells Gray Park area. RCMP had apparently interviewed David once before, earlier on in the investigation as they were going door to door for any sort of tips or information. At the time though, apparently nothing about David seemed very suspicious or off-putting to the officers. When the police tried to locate him in late October of 1983, they discovered he no longer lived in Clearwater. Of course, why would he stay around, right? They dug into his background fairly deeply and found that he was actually connected to another set of murders in British Columbia. In that incident, a witness came forward and claimed that David had hit a victim with his car just outside of Wells Gray Provincial Park. David had allegedly struck the vehicle, ran them over, and never looked back. RCMP searched for the records and realized that nobody had ever been arrested or accused for that crime. I mean, somebody died, and nobody ever got justice. David luckily remained the only suspect. David at the time was living in an area known as Tumblr Ridge, British Columbia, which is about 900 miles north of Wells Gray Park. That's quite the track. Maybe you're running from something, huh? RCMP investigators reached out to the local RCMP chief investigator in that area. His name was Ron German. Ron told the homicide investigators that he was aware who David Shearing was because he had arrested him multiple times for petty theft and traffic violations. Ron said that David would never look him in the eyes, which was always off-putting, and had a general demeanor of being unsavory and definitely not trustworthy. Just a few months after David had moved to Tumblr Ridge, Ron had pulled him over for a routine traffic stop. He noticed David was hauling a bunch of newer looking tools in the back of his pickup truck. When the detective asked David where these tools had come from, he claimed that they were his and he was coming back from a work site. The next day, Ron got a call from two stores in town that they were missing over $40,000 worth of tools that had been stolen. Ron arrested David for the theft, but Canadian laws in the 1980s for theft were fairly lax and they weren't very heavy-handed, if you would. So unfortunately, David was released and continued to commit misdemeanors and thefts throughout the town. When Ron learned that David was the main suspect for the Bentley Johnson murders, he immediately knew he had to arrest him as quickly as he could. However, his counterparts in Clearwater told him to hold off, at least just for now. They wanted to surveil David a bit more and see if they could gather any more information that could incriminate him further. Exactly one month and a day after the discovery of the burnt-out camper, RCMP team led by Chief Ron German approached David as he was getting off of a local bus to come into the station for some questioning. David asked if he was under arrest and Ron said no. Ron said he and David rode for two hours in his squad car until they reached the RCMP post in Dawson's Creek. This place would be better equipped with interrogation rooms that would help keep it a bit more private as well as recording what was going on inside the investigation room. The entire drive, David was calm, didn't really say much. He sat in the back seat with no handcuffs on smoking a cigarette, but Ron, he was anything but calm. Once at Dawson's Creek, Ron German handed over David to RCMP investigator Michael Eastham and another detective from Clearwater. Now, Michael was actually the only RCMP investigator I was able to actually get pictures of for this video for you. Even though they didn't have any physical evidence that would tie David to the murders in the Wells Gray Park area, they decided to try to push forward and get a confession anyway. 
Investigator Eastham asked David about the hit-and-run that he was apparently sighted at. Eastham told filmmaker Steve Allen that at the first mention of the hit-and-run, David immediately softened up and honestly appeared to be relieved. Within just a few minutes, David completely confessed to the deadly hit-and-run. Leaning into David's sense of relief for confessing about the hit-and-run, authorities then confronted him about the Bentley and Johnson murders. For more than 45 minutes, authorities talk all about the details of this case. Everything they were talking about with David was public knowledge. They discussed the victims, where their burnt cars were found, and then investigator Eastham asked David if he remembered about hearing where the victims had been killed. David answered and said Bear Creek Campground. Now this was finally the investigator's ace in the hole. The RCMP had never said anything publicly about the campground. The location of what the investigators believed to be the initial crime scene was always kept very close to their chests and never one time was it discussed in the public. David had slipped up and Easton had knew it. The next few moments were incredibly crucial for the investigators to get David to confess to these murders. They told news outlets that the moment David realized he had said the location of the murders, he began to sweat profusely. He began chain smoking cigarettes and becoming combative. The RCMP investigators did not let up there though. They became much more aggressive with their line of questioning and after around 30 minutes of this, David broke down and began to cry. He had confessed that he had done all six killings and disposed of the family's belongings. Are you 50 or older or are you close to someone that is? If so, listen up. If you're listening to this Gerber Life Guaranteed Life Insurance Sponsorship ad, there's a good chance that you're alive. And if you're not, well, this may not be of interest to you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Life insurance? I'm gonna live forever. Death is what happens to other people. Well, for the sake of argument, let's assume you're wrong and that someday you won't be listening to podcasts anymore. I know, it's not easy to talk about, so I'll do the talking. If you're 50 plus and alive, or 50 to 75 in New York, you can apply for Gerber Life Guaranteed Life Insurance with guaranteed acceptance regardless of your health. And since this life insurance is guaranteed, you don't have to get a medical exam. In fact, you don't even have to fill out a health questionnaire. For a free quote, just visit GerberLifeFamily.com. Then when you stop, I mean, if you stop listening to these podcasts, your family can use the insurance money to help cover your final expenses or anything else. Your kids already inherited your ears, allergies, and questionable singing voice. Don't make them inherit your final expenses tab, too. See website for terms and restrictions. The Confession After writing a full confession, David agreed to create a full map of the Wells Gray Park and walk through how he stalked and killed the families all the way back in August of 1982. He saw the group several times at Bear Creek Campsite while driving to and from his parents' ranch in the area. One night, he snuck down to the area and caught the family by surprise while they were relaxing around the campfire. He said Bob Johnson saw him come out of the woods with a gun and fired at him first. He then shot and killed George, Jackie, and Edith at point-blank range. He said the last two people he shot were Karen and Janet. He swore that his only motivation behind killing the family was to steal their possessions, vehicles, and tools. Investigators didn't believe theft to be a strong motivator to kill six people, and if you're asking me personally, I don't know if that's necessarily a motivator for killing six people either. They suspected that the crime was more sexually motivated, specifically towards Karen and Janet. 
After several more hours of questioning, Eastham asked him directly if he sexually assaulted the girls. David eventually relented and confessed that he did, in fact, abduct Karen and Janet from the campsite after the killings. He kept them alive for several days in the woods, so he could continue assaulting them when he felt like it. He took them to his parents' ranch in a remote cabin in the woods. At one point, David said a prison guard working around the area in Clearwater where his cabin was came knocking on the door one day. Apparently, Karen and Janet were inside, still alive. David was able to get the guard to leave, but this encounter spooked him. Fearing that he would be caught, David took the two girls out to the woods and shot them the very next day. He then placed their bodies in the trunk of their Plymouth, doused it in gasoline, and set it ablaze, hoping to hide any trace of evidence. While walking the police through his crime, he had taken detectives to his family's farm and showed them multiple items that he had kept hidden. Multiple of these belongings belonged to the Bentleys and Johnsons. In the hiding spot, he also showed the investigators the 22 caliber rifle he had used to kill the family. The announcement of the arrest of the mass murderer sent shockwaves but relieved through the Canadian public. Most were glad to see someone being held responsible for the killings. But many in Clearwater who knew David were stunned to learn that he was the culprit. Former high school classmates and friends of David in the town described him as quiet, polite, and, you know, highly intellectual. Apparently, he never really got into fights, never really had any problems, but, you know, what they say about the quiet kids. His mother, Rose, did tell the newspaper that David never really had a steady girlfriend or any sort of strong friendship. He was the youngest of three children and had always worked odd jobs his entire life. He mainly lived in the Clearwater area and basically stayed at home for most of his time. In 1983, he finally moved out of the family ranch to Tumblr Ridge to apparently find work at a coal mine in the area. David's former employer said that sometime in 1982 when David's father died, it really seemed to affect him. Apparently, his father died of a heart attack. Apparently, this event was so upsetting that he had to emphasize this by committing mass murder, but hey, to each their own. On April 16th, 1984, David would finally go to trial for the murders. The Trial David pleaded guilty to all charges and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years, which is the maximum sentence under Canadian law. Canada's criminal justice system allows offenders, even if they are a self-admitted rapist, murderer, etc., the option of parole after 25 years. The people of British Columbia were rightfully outraged by this. Many wanted David to be put to death for his crimes, and many can argue that he definitely deserves it. According to the Edmonton Journal, David, by that point who had changed his last name to Ennis, applied for parole in 2008 at the age of 49. After more than 9,000 people signed a petition saying David should not be released, the National Parole Board denied his hearing. The board has also ruled the same way every time he has tried to apply in 2012, 2014, and even as recently as 2021. After impact statements were heard from the friends and family, members of the Canadian Parole Board really started to weigh out what risk would be held if he was ever put out. They would ask David about his past to see if he was at risk of reoffending. In the end, the parole board did say while they have noticed many positive strides in David's life to be a better person due to his incarceration, they didn't think he was ready for release. 
parole board Delaney Dew thanked everyone who participated in giving her impact statements. Before making a statement, she read aloud to Dennis saying, You're serving a life sentence, but the victims, the community, they're serving an indeterminate sentence. There are some positives in your case. You understand that you're a work in progress, but there are overwhelming negative aspects in your case. The most appropriate place for you to make the gains is in the safety and security of the Institute. I've got to say, David seems to be living a pretty good life despite being behind bars. He married a woman in 1995 and gets conjugal visits where he gets to visit his children. He claims that he has found faith with God and has reformed entirely, but um, what serial killer doesn't say that? Author Alan Warren interviewed David in prison for his book Murder Time 6. After interviewing David in person, the interviewer allegedly left the prison with the impression that David really did want to be a changed man. But then again, Alan said, that's exactly what all serial killers do. During his interviews, Alan got to see the inside of David's cell. The small space was simple, had a TV, and on a regular basis, David could come and go as he pleased from his cell, even finding time to tend the garden in the prison yard. Well, that's it for this one, guys. What did you think? Do you think David Ennis, regardless of the name change, is an actual changed man? Let me know in the comments. I'd love to see your take. I'd love to see some discussions talking about this. That's all for tonight, but I'll have something new in no time. In the meantime, why not check out other cases that I've covered that are similar to this, like the Tube Sock Killings or the Paul Fugate Missing Park Ranger Unsolved Mystery. You can find those in the description or in the linked videos. Be sure to punch that like button, subscribe if you're new, and I'll see you soon with another creepy episode. Man, I definitely cannot wait for all the, oh my god, he's a Florida State fan comments. It's gonna be great. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another video on my channel. I hope everyone's doing well, but no matter how you're feeling, today is going to be a little bit better because I've got a new story for you. Today we're once again getting into some more disappearances, this time in the Ridley Creek State Park. I thought it might be fun to discuss a lesser known park. There are many state and national parks across the country that many people may never have heard of, and there's plenty of strange mysteries in each one of them. At the very least, I thought it would be cool that we could accomplish the feat of sharing a story you likely haven't heard before. The Ridley Creek State Park land was originally purchased in the 1960s and officially dedicated to public use in 1972. It covers over 2,600 acres in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, and includes parts of Edgemont, Middleton, and Upper Providence Townships. Though it does have a variety of hiking trails, it's not uncommon for locals to just kind of walk through the woods freely. Aside from the usual park activities, this park also has a 300-year-old plantation that has been restored using nothing but 18th century tools. And on any given day, you can actually see interpreters and reenactors on those very grounds to this day. You can see them mending a fence or baking bread. It's actually really cool. They essentially recreate the lives of the former owners. They also have a formal garden area designed by the Olmsted brothers. 
According to the Wikipedia page, if it's accurate, this firm was established in 1898, making it the first architectural firm in the United States. Unfortunately, though, Ridley Creek also shares its fair share of tragedy. Much like many of the other state parks we cover, there is no shortage of tragic disappearances, unsolved murders, and much more going on within the borders of this small state park. More specifically, there is a Jane Doe case from 2016 that is still actively being investigated that initially sparked my attention to the state park in the first place. She was found approximately at 1 p.m. on January 1st, and her case has been stumping law enforcement ever since. But before we get into all that, I want to tell you a interesting piece of local history, just to set the mood a bit. Thanks to Library Archives, a current resident by the name of Carla Welsh found a newspaper article from 1902. And she instantly knew that others would be just as interested in seeing this as she was. She then shared the information on her social media, and it quickly spread through the small town like wildfire. Interestingly enough, it seemed that many people weren't even aware of this piece of forgotten history. And luckily, Carla discovered it just by chance and was able to resurface it for all of us to enjoy. Or, I guess, be aware of. This is the story of Pennsylvania's first and only known witch trial. This trial happened nine full years before the infamous Salem witch trials began. And one of the women accused was a Delco woman known as the Witch of Ridley Creek. In 1683, a Swedish settler by the name of Margaret Matson lived on a farm in a very wooded area near Crum Creek. She lived there with her husband who went by Niels. Allegedly, Margaret would say strange incantations over a great cauldron of boiling meat. Though, full disclosure, another Swedish woman by the name of Yeshro Hendrickson was also accused and ultimately sentenced, but I was ultimately unable to find any more details as to why or what led to this sentencing. At the time of the witch trials, the colony actually hadn't set up a real justice system yet, so there was no court system to be heard of. First, Margaret was brought before the council on February 7th, 1683, and on the 27th, she had her trial with a grand jury in Philadelphia. A pettit jury, witnesses, the attorney general, and the governor were all there. She would plead not guilty, and witnesses would go on to claim that they heard that she was a witch through some very unreliable sources going around town. One man actually stood up and said 20 years prior he had heard that Matson was a witch through the grapevine. So, Basically, there was never any evidence that this woman had harmed anybody, had put spells on anybody. She just so happened to be foreign, probably spoke a little bit differently, probably was doing something just in her native tongue, and was scaring people. But to be honest, did you really think the witch trials were any different? I'm not really all that shocked, because when I imagined the whole witch hysteria in the 16 and 1700s, I kind of imagined it being much like this. I heard she was a witch. Margaret did have an interpreter to help her speak, but she didn't have a lawyer. Despite this, she did relatively well in defending herself. She constantly reminded the jury that each allegation was, in fact, only hearsay. The jury did reconvene and even came with a verdict that very day. Matson was found guilty of having the common fame of a witch, but not guilty in the form of which she stands indicted. 
I think this basically translates to you definitely have the reputation of a witch, but we have no proof to show that you are actually a witch. The punishment was actually fairly light, especially for those days. Apparently, Margaret was only required to pay a 50-pound fine and practice good behavior for six months. Obviously, this is a very different result from what happens nine years later in Salem when people are basically just cutting heads off for no reason. Thankfully, that this didn't end in some bloodshed. Anyways, that's it for this witchy story. Praise Shrek, hallelujah, let's move on to the actual mysteries of this video. Okay, so cool history aside, let's get into some modern disappearances. Starting in 2012 with 44-year-old Teresa Mastricola. She was a master sergeant with the Coast Guard and an avid hiker who would often leave town for days at a time to explore the wilderness. She also worked as an imaging equipment specialist at Delaware County Memorial Hospital, and it would be her co-workers there who would ultimately report her as missing when she failed to appear for a shift. On Sunday, December 2nd, she was seen leaving her home. Sometime between 9 and 10 a.m. that morning. A witness who saw her described her as getting into her car wearing her hospital scrubs, assumably showing that she was headed to work. She was also caught leaving work that same day on some surveillance footage from the hospital. But that would be the last time anyone would ever see her alive. Police began their search with Teresa's silver 2006 Mazda, but they would actually discover her body in Ridley Creek State Park on the following Saturday with no sign of her car anywhere. In fact, I can find no mention of the car ever being found anywhere in my research. One would definitely think this is a sign of foul play. Where possibly could her car have gone after she reached the park. The medical examiner ruled her death as helium inhalation causing asphyxiation and ultimately ruled it a suicide. But does that mean that someone coincidentally happened to steal her car that same night? I mean, it's a big coincidence if so, but I guess it is a possibility. Or was it not really a suicide after all? There is very little known information about this case. Maybe we're missing a key detail to make this whole thing fall into place. Who knows? But as it stands currently, this is basically all we know about this story, and I'll definitely keep you updated if we get any more new information around this story. As for that Jane Doe case no one even knew about until 2016, on New Year's Day, when a couple was hiking through the park, they just so happened to veer off trail into one of the more densely wooded areas of the park, only to discover a body and immediately dial 911. State troopers arrived on the scene, and after a 20-minute trek to the area the couple had been, they then saw the remains. They were fully skeletonized and clearly had been there for quite some time. After their initial examination, investigators thought that she probably had died sometime in the winter of 2014. She was a slender, white female with brown hair and a prominent jawline. Though they originally believed her to be in her early 20s, that estimate was eventually revised and bumped up to 45. Her height ranged from 5'3 to 5'10. Unfortunately, this is an incredibly vague description. This description could probably be applied and be applicable to most women we know in our everyday lives. It doesn't really help anybody slim down anything. Investigators tried their damnedest to try to find any information or tips that could help identify this Jane Doe, but to no avail. Jane Doe's death was nearly impossible to determine, but police, for some reason, were rather confident that they could identify her rather shortly. 
Upper Darby Police Department Superintendent Mike Chitwood stated he believed it could be the remains of Amanda DeGio, who did go missing in 2014. This statement was taken very poorly by the family, though. Amanda's sister, Nicole, made a statement on Facebook saying the comments were inappropriate and unnecessary. After receiving information that the remains were in fact not her sister, Amanda had all four of her wisdom teeth pulled and Jane Doe still had all four of their wisdom teeth. When the 24-year-old mother of two from Drexel Hill vanished, she left behind her phone, her wallet, and didn't bring any extra clothing, though she was not reported missing until August 27th. She had not been seen by her family since returning from Florida in the first week of June, and since it's reported that she doesn't drive, it's unknown how she left home. Nicole worried her sister was being held against her will somewhere, and often searched for her sister in areas well known for drug use and other things. She mentions that she went and looked everywhere in every bad neighborhood possible where she could think somebody would be holding someone. I should be up front and note that on the FBI's website, it does note that Amanda was a known heroin addict, but I don't think that makes their life in this case any less important. Drug use is a ugly thing, and we all most likely have family members who have dealt with it in some form or another. Addiction can really ruin somebody's life, even if they are a great person. So we shouldn't use that as who they are. They're still valuable, and so many cases get swept under the rug because of these connotations. Nobody is lesser in society because of their hardships. Amanda was also known to suffer from bipolar disorder. Though the case is now over eight years old, investigators are still diligently looking into what happened to Amanda. Investigators are, in fact, still following every lead. This past September, local and federal authorities searched a property of a home on Red Bump Road in Nottingham. Amanda's mother and sister were on scene that day, but unfortunately no closure would be found. No remains were found on the property, and Amanda's case remains unsolved. With another case so similar, the odds that a match would be made seem to be in the investigator's favor. <laughs> Just kidding. That's not really the case most of the time, is it? Jane Doe remained unidentified. Her dental records and DNA were checked against the National Missing Persons database, but no dice. They even had isotope analysis done on her hair and teeth to help determine maybe where she lived. And it revealed that she was most likely born in Pennsylvania or a surrounding state. Eventually, investigators turned to the Florida Institute of Forensic Anthropology and Applied Science in order to create a facial reconstruction of the victim. With a new image to show to the public, authorities were feeling reinvigorated that someone may just recognize Jane Doe. Unfortunately, though, they still weren't so lucky. When the case began, began to run cold, officials released a description of everything found with the body, which consisted of Gloria Vanderbilt brand blue jeans, a blue winter jacket, and a pair of size 9 black totes boots. Nearby was a green plaid blanket and a Route 66 backpack, a navy blue canvas bag, a pair of size 9 gray and pink sneakers in the Skechers brand, a box cutter, and two empty pill bottles. Again, this resulted in zero leads. It seemed as if nobody at all on this entire planet was missing Jane Doe of Ridley Creek. At a dead end, the investigators decided to reinvestigate the victim's clothing. Now that the mud had dried, three gold rings had fallen from the victim's pocket. Each was yellow gold, but the metal had darkened from decay. One was a Clodeau ring with a green stone. Apparently it's like an Irish ring, commonly used for friendships, engagements, and weddings. So basically it could mean anything. One of the rings seemed to have initially 
initials carved into them. They could definitely make out the letter C, but the second letter was a bit too distorted. It could either be C-A or C-R. Some have theorized that Jane Doe could have been a homeless woman who succumbed to the elements in the winter, and that could explain why none of her loved ones are aware that she's missing or care, I guess. Then there are those who have made this crazy story that this woman would sell these gold rings in the park, but again, there is no evidence to support any of these rumors and are probably just local speculation. Those rings could have been of great sentimental value to Jane Doe, but I guess we will never know. Maybe she did sell them. Maybe they weren't even hers. But since they're found in the body, you gotta assume they are. I can confidently say that I don't think she expected to die the night she did. We must consider the way the rings were found on her body, though. Since they were concealed and hidden and not on the body itself, maybe she was hiding from someone or hiding them from someone. Maybe she was in fear of being robbed. Like I said, this is all speculation, but who knows, right? Again, if she was even homeless to begin with, this also could just be a habit of hiding your valuable things. But I do struggle to find an explanation as to why no one has been able to identify her, even with all of the technology we have today. Let's close today's video with a discovery made just this past March, when a volunteer organization by the name of Adventures with Purpose sent divers to Ridley Creek Marina. This group has actually been responsible for solving multiple missing persons cases in this manner. This time, they were contacted by the family of James Amabile, a man who went missing in 2003 at the age of 38. The day James disappeared, he was on his way back from the babysitter's house picking up his children. He called the babysitter to say he would be about 5 to 10 minutes late picking up his daughters. After that call, they never heard from him again. The location his body was ultimately discovered is actually only a couple of blocks away from the babysitter's home, which only makes the situation that much more tragic. Perhaps there is something to be grateful for, though. Apparently, he was the only person in the vehicle at the time of this accident. Had this car crash happened after he picked up his daughters, this could be a much more tragic situation. James wore an insulin pump and would become disoriented due to low blood sugars. It is believed that this played a part in his demise. Thankfully, now the family can finally have closure and peace knowing this. While the license plate from the car was confirmed to be that of James, they could not confirm the identity until the coroner took a look over his body. His identity was 100% confirmed with his dental records. And honestly, who knows how long James's case could have gone unsolved if it wasn't for this dive team. The vehicle was submerged in 24 feet of water, and apparently a pylon was drilled through the front unknowingly by workers. Now, on the surface, this may seem like a pretty open and shut case. A genuine accident, if you will. And I agree, it probably is, especially with the note about that insulin pump. It does seem like all the right boxes were checked, and we can rest easy knowing the man was discovered and eventually brought home. There is one singular line in an article I read that actually kind of makes me question that. On CBSnews.com, it states, The divers chose where to look due to an anonymous tip. Which begs the question, who the hell knew where to look? Like we said, this was 24 feet submerged under the surface. It's not like anybody would casually just see that, and it's not like this was a spot that people actually dived or snorkeled in or anything like that. It's a relatively random area of water. Now, it was James's family who initially reached out to Adventures with Purpose. But as far as I can tell from all the coverage and information made available online, 
the actual tip of where the car may be located didn't come from the family, and we don't know who it came from. Regardless, the case was ruled an accident, and is therefore unlikely to receive any more investigation. But I just can't help but wondering, accident or not, it's hard to imagine what James must have went through in his final moments. I can't imagine being the family as well, not knowing what happened to him for two decades. But hey, that's life for you. It's terrifying, and every day could be our last. So definitely hold your loved ones tight. I guess that's going to do it for today, guys. Thank you so much for joining me today on this video. Before you go, let me know in the comments what you think about Jane Doe. I would love to know your theories. I'd love to hear your idea of how Jane Doe got there and who Jane Doe could be. Do you think that the Ridley Creek Jane Doe will ever actually be identified? And what do you think the police could do further to actually push this investigation more? It does feel like the local theory about the woman being homeless does seem to check a lot of boxes and is very convenient, but I just can't help but wonder that that might just be an easy cop-out that you see all the time in these Jane Doe cases. Don't forget to do the things I always ask you to do. Slap that like button, silly. Subscribe to the channel if you're new. I upload videos like this almost all the time and have plenty in the backlog. And again, if you have any topics you'd like to see me cover, let me know down below, and I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode. To some of you, it may be no surprise the hunters are among some of the most common individuals to go missing. There are entire books in the Missing 411 series by David Politis dedicated to experienced hunters who have seemingly vanished into thin air, never to be found. Tonight, we're going to be exploring some of these cases along with a couple that are even stranger. Cases where experienced outdoorsmen suddenly disappear, only to turn up days or even months later, sometimes in entirely different locations. Is it a glitch in the matrix? Time travel? or can it all be explained by a simple head injury? Well, truthfully, nothing about these cases is exactly simple. Actually, most of them remain unexplained. Even with the instances of missing hunters, the answers aren't always so straightforward. So, let's get into tonight's episode. Four skilled outdoorsmen who mysteriously vanished. Case number one, Robert Winters, still missing. Robert Winters was a 78-year-old experienced hunter who went missing in 1969. He disappeared in Sparks Lake, Oregon, while hunting with his three sons, also experienced hunters. They understood weather conditions weren't ideal for the higher elevation, so they agreed to set up base camp. When it came time to split up, they each claimed a certain area near camp. Again, they agreed to stay at a lower elevation only covering familiar territory. Though the men were separated for quite some time, they were never too far apart. A couple of hours later, each of the sons had returned to camp, but there was no sign of Robert. Initially, the brothers combed the area on foot, searching in and around where their father set up earlier that day. After nearly an hour of searching independently, they sought real help to locate their father. It was getting dark and the weather was only getting worse, so they were considerably scared. Eventually, over 60 searchers were assembled. Unfortunately, shortly after Robert went missing, the area experienced heavy snowfall and a snowstorm overtook the entire area. The only early discovery were some tracks in the snow. These tracks were at a higher elevation, traversing upwards, not in the same area or direction Robert would likely have been in. They were later determined not to be his footprints. 
Roughly nine months after Robert's disappearance, searchers discovered some of his belongings near the area he vanished. All of the items looked to have been carefully removed. There was no shredding, tearing, or ripping involved. No blood either. Just one singular hiking boot, a single glove, a pair of glasses, and Robert's gun. All near the base of a tree. In addition to the nearly perfect condition of these belongings, the fact that there was no blood, no bones, or any real signs of death, well, it was quite simply puzzling. Had Robert simply passed away from the elements? If so, they would expect to find some sort of DNA at or around the scene. Deputies Mel Newhouse and Norman Thrasher were present at the discovery and described the scene as very odd as not one single bone or bone fragment has ever been recovered despite an extremely detailed search. Robert had just up and vanished, and the only clues left behind were an assortment of things he had on the day he disappeared. After so much time has passed and under such grueling conditions, there was no way Robert could still be alive. Though his body was never discovered, the coroner signed his death certificate in the same year they found his belongings. This meant he was now legally deceased and his family could move forward with funeral arrangements. One year later, Robert's dentures were found in the same area his clothing and gun were previously located. No new discoveries have been reported since, and Robert Winter's case remains a mystery, not only for his family and locals in the area, but also for investigators, hunters, and outdoorsmen alike. What do you think happened to Robert Winter's? Case number two, David Peltier, still missing. This case also involves a missing hunter and like Robert Winters, David Lee Peltier has never been found. On November 3rd, 2018, Lee Peltier and his three friends decided to take a brief but familiar hunting trip through Namadji State Forest in Hinkley, Minnesota. All four men were experienced outdoorsmen. They weren't dressed for nasty weather, though, as this particular hunt was meant to be a quick expedition for lunch. Lee headed towards a nearby pond with John Warner, who was a part owner of the cabin they were using. According to Peltier's daughter, John and Lee separated intentionally with plans to meet up again. John made his way to higher ground atop the bluff while Lee walked along the pond's edge to flush out any deer. The hope was to send them straight into John's awaiting sights, but things didn't go according to plan. Peltier never showed up for lunch that Saturday, but his friends assumed he was trailing a deer. They really didn't think much of it at first, but soon an hour turned into a couple of hours, then dusk, and shortly thereafter it was dark. Lee's friends were officially starting to worry. With no cell service to be found, the men built a huge bonfire outside the cabin and listened for gunshots. If a hunter is in distress, they'll shoot three shots into the air, so they were waiting to hear anything like that, which they did not. They stayed up all night waiting for him. Megan DeCourcy, one of Lee's daughters, explained in an interview shortly after he went missing. The unkind change in weather hindered the search for their friend. The rain turned to snow and the temperature had dropped below 20 degrees. With the elements working against them, it was eventually decided to continue their search on foot in the morning. At dawn, the three men went out to continue their search for Lee. Then they headed down toward town, 
over a half hour drive away to call 911. That call came into dispatch at 11.24 a.m. and within less than an hour, a real search was underway for Lee Peltier. The initial search included five officers from the Pine County Sheriff's Office and the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, who searched on foot and by ATV until nightfall. The next morning, friends and family from the metro area came to help search the area that the hunters were in encircles nearly 93,000 acres in Pine and Carleton counties. Search crews and investigators reported the wet and treacherous terrain, such as swamps, bogs, dense tree lines, which all made the search incredibly difficult. You have to see it to believe it. It's just one giant bog, Lee's son David said of the search area. There's some high ground in there, but not very much. It's so thick, it's easy to get turned around. We had a group of 12 of us in a search party and we thought we were walking west and then we stopped and looked at the compass and we were going southeast. He continued, They typically find lost people within a half mile of their last known location, but I think it's a lot further away than they think. He was physically fit and I think he covered a lot of ground. David believes his father, who visited the same cabin the previous winter, became hypothermic due to the conditions he faced combined with the lack of protective gear he was last seen wearing. According to Lee's daughters, their father didn't have a backpack, water, or even a lighter on them. They, along with the others, speculated he could have possibly fallen into the pond he was circling, or he could have gotten turned around subsequently getting lost. In an interview towards the end of the search, the family said every time they walked out of that forest, they felt like they were leaving Lee behind. They continued to search the area and ask locals to help keep their eyes open. They know he's still out there. When investigators received cell phone records from AT&T, they showed that Lee made three phone calls at 1.40pm on November 3rd, one to each of his three fellow hunters. According to Lee's daughter, his phone hadn't died until 5.30 the next morning. She recounts that if he had somehow fallen or gone into the water on Saturday, his phone could have died long before Sunday morning. It's so hard and confusing because you think one thing makes sense and then it doesn't, she said. He's been hunting all his life. He grew up on a farm. He loved the outdoors. He would have known to fire his gun. If he were going to take cover, if he found a cave or something, he would have put a clue outside, left some sign. There has never been any recovered evidence relating to this case. No leads since the initial investigation in 2018. No DNA has ever surfaced in or around the area where he went missing. Unfortunately, as it stands today, nobody knows for sure what happened to Lee Peltier. Case number four, Danny Philippidis, missing six days. Firefighter Danny Philippidis suffered a head injury and went missing while he was on an annual ski trip with co-workers. What is especially puzzling about Danny's case isn't that he just went missing, but also when and where he was found. Danny actually ended up wandering around a parking garage in Sacramento six days after he vanished from a ski resort in Lake Placid, New York. Not only were these places over 2,000 miles apart, but Danny had no recollection of how he had gotten to California in the first place. What's more, he didn't even recognize the clothes he was wearing, the items he held, or his surroundings. It was entirely foreign. For a while, Danny and his loved ones weren't sure exactly what happened to him, not literally or medically. Over time, 
Doctors and police have been able to fill in some of the blanks, determining Danny's unusual ordeal came about as a result of a head injury sustained on that fateful trek to retrieve his cell phone. You see, it was the Toronto Fire Service's annual ski trip to Lake Placid, New York, and as it was coming to an end, Danny decided to capture some photos for their last night. That's when he realized he had forgotten his phone in the car. He and his friends were in the lodge about halfway up Whiteface Mountain, which meant it would be quite the ordeal to grab it. He told friends he planned to ski down to his car, and they could document the end of their trip when he returned. But this relatively simple journey turned into a mind-bending journey for the 50-year-old fire captain, a journey he will likely never fully remember. So, what does he remember? Philippidus believes the calamity began when he took a wrong turn on the way back to the car. He has no recollection of a supposed fall that knocked him out and likely caused the concussion, but remembers coming too at dusk. Danny was feeling sore and disoriented but made his way toward what he thought to be the main ski lodge. However, when he arrived, he found it was closed and deserted. Investigators later determined Danny likely fell near a children's ski slope, then worked his way to the main lodge or hub of a child's program a sparsely populated area that would have been closed at the time. Danny's memories of what happened next are considered fragmented at best. He suspects he flagged down a truck in hopes to secure a ride off the mountain. He has a memory of climbing into a warm truck cab while still wearing his ski boots and winter clothing and being sick on the side of the road. He remembers learning that they were driving through Utah. I'd never been out that way, he told reporters. It kind of added to my confusion and feeling of not really knowing what was going on because I'm not familiar with that part of the country. He remembers the sharp impression of these particularly crushing headaches and that he experienced intense fatigue which left him unable to do much, other than sleep, as he unknowingly moved further away from Lake Placid. He had hoped it was all just a bad dream but gave way to the grim reality when after a few days on the road the trucker informed him that they had reached the end of the line in Sacramento. To this day, Danny maintains he doesn't know the trucker's identity, and authorities have never been able to locate him. Danny found himself wandering, intent on contacting his wife, but not sure how. Miraculously, he still had the credit card he used to pay for his lift pass in Lake Placid, along with some cash. With this, he was able to purchase a cell phone, but this was not an easy task given that the fact he had no form of identification, only the card. Even after obtaining a phone, Danny couldn't immediately remember his wife's number. He ended up on the internet and that's when he realized he was the subject of a missing person investigation. The very next day, he flagged down a ride to the Sacramento airport. While there, he was finally able to recall his wife's number. His frantic family then urged him to call 911, ultimately landing him in the hospital for evaluation. I feel fortunate that I'm here talking today because of all the potential things that could have resulted, he says. Danny's inability to recall what happened and his head injury not being known about initially created room for speculation. Some suggested he planned the disappearance for exposure, but there's no real proof he actually received any positive attention for this event, and there certainly isn't any real motive. There were a lot of people who found it suspicious that Danny could only recall certain details or that he somehow safely traveled over 2,000 miles with no understanding how. Regardless of what happened while he was missing, what we do know is that he experienced head trauma, so it shouldn't be excluded as a possible explanation for why he's unable to recall what happened in that six-day period. In fact, 
is probably the most likely explanation. Doctors were the ones to present this theory after performing several brain scans. They suggested his misadventures and missing time were side effects of amnesia suffered as a result of a traumatic head injury. Dr. Charles Tater, director of the Canadian Concussion Center at the Toronto Western Hospital, states amnesia can take place in about a quarter of all concussion cases, adding that headaches, fatigue, and nausea, and islands of memory are all classic symptoms. Most people make a complete recovery, although the amnesia will likely last forever, Tater says. He will probably forever have those blanks. Danny confirmed this as recently as 2019 and stated he is content with the fact that he will likely never remember those six days. He's also grateful because unlike so many others, he's not still missing nor does he suffer any long-term brain damage or negative side effects. As of 2022, Danny Philippidis remains a firefighter with the Toronto Fire Department and he considers himself very lucky. Case number four, Steve Kubecki, missing 15 months. The last case we'll cover today is one of the strangest I have ever come across. It's the story of a man who vanished while skiing, only to turn up halfway across the country 15 months later with no idea how he got there. Stephen Kubecki was 23 years old when he vanished from Holland, Michigan on February 19, 1978. At the time, he was a student at Hope College, and before disappearing, he told roommates he was going cross-country skiing along the Lake Michigan coastline to Saugatuck. Hours later, when Stephen still had not returned back, his roommates called the police. Soon, the state police and Coast Guard were using helicopters and tracking dogs to locate the student who had been missing for an undetermined amount of time. Search crews found his skis, poles, backpack, and footprints. His tracks led roughly 200 yards out into the frozen surface of Lake Michigan, then abruptly stopped. Fifteen months passed without anyone seeing or hearing from Stephen. Although they were never able to determine why he removed his equipment to venture out onto the frozen lake in the first place. Local police assumed he fell through the ice and drowned. He was presumed dead and Hope College issued his degree in absentia. The detectives who investigated his disappearance did have their doubts about the drowning theory, though. They even sent Stephen's dental records to Chicago to see if he might be among the unidentified victims of serial killer John Wayne Gacy, but those results came back negative. His family mourned him, but Stephen's parents, who are no longer alive, never believed their son was dead. Desperate to find him, they had a private investigator working on this case the entire time. Then, the unimaginable happened. On May 5, 1979, Stephen Kubecki suddenly woke up somewhere he didn't recognize. He was in a meadow, wearing someone else's clothes, and there was a nearby backpack he didn't recognize as his own. When he looked inside the backpack, he found it was full of maps. I would guess I was hitchhiking, Kubecki recalled of this initial moment. He then walked into town and looked at a newspaper, Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Then he noticed the date. He was shocked to find 15 months had passed and he was 700 miles away from where he vanished. After his reappearance, Kubecki told reporters when he first came to he had $40 in cash, new glasses, shoes, and a t-shirt from a marathon in Wisconsin. 
I felt like I've done a lot of running, he said in an interview after his return. His memory up to his disappearance remained intact, and he reported his last memory was of feeling cold and scared and being lost in a frozen darkness. In the bag full of maps, there was also hitchhiking signs which suggested Stephen had already traveled very widely, from Sacramento to San Francisco to Reno, Chicago, Utah. According to him, he had not been planning to travel to any of these places. In his initial police interview, he stated he may have been heading to his father's house which sat about 40 miles outside of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, but he made no plans to visit him so he couldn't be sure. Stephen has and still claims to have no recollection of anything that happened during his 15-month disappearance. So how or why does he have memorabilia from marathons he cannot remember? It's sort of terrifying, but the more you read about Stephen, the more you understand that he's equally if not more invested in this story than anyone. It's truly a wild mystery. What's also mysterious is Stephen's response to requests for interviews since his initial reappearance. Outside of his initial police interview, he has absolutely refused to speak to the media or any sort of news outlet about the incident. Though, he did co-author a book. The title, you ask? Meta-Mathematical Foundations of Existence. Godel, Quantum, God, and Beyond. Yeah, and no, I haven't gotten around to reading it quite yet, but anyone can purchase the novel online, and there are some excerpts on his website. The book essentially lays out Quebecki's thoughts on the inconsistencies and incompleteness of our understanding of reality. Speculation by UFO enthusiasts only grew once Quebecki published the work. For many, Stephen's own assertion that our universe is at best incomplete and at worst inconsistent just further fueled their speculation that something truly extraordinary happened to him in 1978. With all the basics missing from his memory, they're really missing from history, too. There's just about enough information to ensure that we can't be sure about anything. Had Stephen walked across Lake Michigan? If so, where was he headed? And why did he strip down first? How did Stephen sustain life for 15 months yet have no memory of it? Whose clothes was he wearing when he woke up? And where did those maps come from? The list of questions goes on and on, with most of them still remaining a mystery, even for Stephen. We may never know what really happened, or who else it could be happening to right now. Some people attribute the region itself to playing a part in Stephen's mysterious absence. Significantly smaller in size than the widely known Bermuda Triangle, the mystery of the Michigan Triangle could be a video all of its own. The Lake Michigan Triangle has been the site of several unexplained disasters, whether it be aerial crashes, shipwrecks, or vanishings. These events date back centuries. It seems to start with the disappearance of a Hackley and Hume lumber schooner that was making its trip home to Muskegon in 1891. This wasn't a long trip by any means and it was quickly noticed when the ship never made it across. But where it went remained a mystery for nearly 115 years. Interestingly, this mystery has been solved for the most part, though widely ignored. Perhaps, legends are sometimes more fun than facts. The 132-foot, three-masted schooner was found and identified with near certainty at the bottom of Lake Michigan's southern portion in 2005. Taras Lysenko, a diver with A&T Recovery out of Chicago, discovered the wreck in 2005 while a Lake Michigan shipwreck hunter and searcher helped identify the wreckage. 
Elizabeth Sherman, a maritime author and great-granddaughter of the schooner's namesake, presented the discovery at the Great Lakes Conference at the Great Lakes Naval Memorial and Museum. In addition, the discovery is a glimpse into the true power of the Great Lakes and the estimated 8,000 ships at the bottom. Divers have even confirmed a Stonehenge-like structure underwater in Lake Michigan. A Lake Michigan Stonehenge? Quite possibly. Yeah, this is a real thing. Features are similar to those found in England, including one large one with some sort of carving or writing on it. Another strange event in the area took place in 1950 when 2501 USS Airlines crashed into Lake Michigan. It was presumed the deadliest accident in American history, yet there was never any wreckage. A severe electrical storm is supposedly what caused the plane to crash, but in addition to zero wreckage, no bodies were ever recovered. So what happened? Did the plane fly into another dimension? Who knows? This one actually remains completely unsolved. Without going too deep into the mystery surrounding the Lake Michigan Triangle, we can at least safely say it has been the site of some strange occurrences. And, even Stephen Kubecki's case is right there on top of the list. For decades, he has refused to speak about his disappearances with reporters. He has ignored any attempts to reach him, and his only known family has done the same. Their lips are sealed. Well, sort of. A newly published book by author Dylan James Quarles claims to be the untold story of Stephen Kubecki and written in partnership with Kubecki himself. I... I personally haven't read it yet. However, a few quick searches on the internet confirm that Stephen has not released anything new regarding his experience, meaning no new memories have surfaced. So, is this real or fake? Well, it wasn't fake because Stephen Kubecki actually did disappear, but there's no proof that it wasn't of his own accord, nor is there proof that it was. Some would argue that the most logical theory is that Kubecki suffered an emotional or mental health episode, one that made him disappear from society for a spell before returning when he felt like it. Stephen has always denied this theory, maintaining he did not disappear of his own accord, and confirming that he does not suffer from any mental health disorders. Today, Kubecki remains alive and well, working as a psychologist in the Pacific Northwest. He still maintains having no memory of those 15 months he was missing. Well guys, that's it for tonight, but don't worry. You know I'll have something new in a couple of days. Besides, if you get really bored, you can always hop on over to my second channel and check out the Dark Side Podcast. You'll find more of the true horror you already love with bonus deep dives into everything from gaming to other YouTubers. So, what did you think about this episode? Have you heard about these cases before or did you find them interesting? I'd love to hear your thoughts and even theories in the comments. Thank you so much for tuning in, and have a great night, everybody. Be sure to punch that like button in the face like it just insulted your mom's famous macaroni casserole. Subscribe if you're new as it helps the channel grow. Join me over on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those other good social medias. And I'll see you all soon with another creepy video.